Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you that we can meet around your word freely. So Lord, we thank you. The devil knows his time is short, and it might be very short if you come this Rosh Hashanah, which is this next Wednesday, the 4th of September. Some year you're going to come, we know that, at one of the feast days, and we think it'll be the Feast of Trumpets when the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet you in the clouds to be with you forever. Maybe this will be the last meeting we'll have, but if not, then maybe next year at Rosh Hashanah, whenever it is. We know that Jesus couldn't have just died on the cross at any time. He had to die at the Feast of Passover to be the Passover lamb. We know that the church couldn't have started just at any time. It had to start on the day of Pentecost um, when the offering in the Old Testament was offered with yeast, picturing the believer, the human, uh, with sin in him. So we just thank you for these promises and the promises of the feasts, the prophetic blessings that we see from them. Bless us as we consider now the prophetic and the spiritual meaning of the tabernacle in the wilderness. We thank you for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to skip around in the Bible today. We had the giving of the law in chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. We saw that the law was in three different parts. The moral law or the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt love the Lord with all your heart. Jesus said they're all filled up with love the Lord with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. That includes all the Ten Commandments. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to steal from him or do anything else harmful to him. But God spells out the commandments. So there, that's the first part of the Mosaic Law. The second part is the civil part, the laws concerning property damage we saw last week, concerning slaves, concerning dishonesty and immorality. And in chapter 22, laws concerning civil and religious obligations. And then the Sabbaths and the feasts in chapter 23. Then about going to war and winning, it, it, that's all in chapter 23. And he, God says that if you keep my commandments and follow me, I'll drive out your enemies little by little uh, from before you until you've increased, verse 30 of chapter 23. So we saw the second part of the law First is moral, then the civil part. And our own laws, many of them, are brought right into America. Our founders were Christian. They put these laws in our Constitution. So anyway, the third part is the ceremonial law. We're going to see they can't keep these laws, uh, but God gives their perfect. Paul says, by the law is the knowledge of sin. We know what sin is by the law, but they couldn't keep it, as we've seen what rebellious people they are and we're going to see that the minute Moses is up there getting the commandments they're down worshiping a golden calf again. So the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. They couldn't keep the law so God made a way through picture with the people, with the priesthood, how to approach him, how to approach a holy God in the Old Testament and have your sins covered over and that's what atonement means, covered over, just for the time being, until the Savior would come. So 
it's all Leviticus it's about this how fair God is and how in the Old Testament they could approach him and have their sins covered over and be sure, assured of heaven not only that we know that Abraham saw Jesus Christ's day Moses knew about Jesus Christ so that they knew from the gospel and the stars also the way of salvation that God had that a virgin would someday come and, and bear a son and that he would be the savior from for sin so they knew a lot of things but the savior hadn't come yet so the law lasted until the time of Pentecost but so chapter 25 we saw last week that the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering and we know that when they left Egypt they spoiled the Egyptians they took everything they took all the wealth of Egypt with them and so that they bring me an offering from everyone who gives it willingly and we read in the New Testament God loves a cheerful giver and he doesn't want to have us begrudgingly give him anything and they gave too much really but everyone who gives it willingly from his heart you shall take my offering so they were to take uh, gold and silver and bronze and blue and purple and scarlet yarn fine linen thread goat's hair see all of these things the coverings, the goat's hair uh, the ram skins dyed red all of this pictured some facet of the work of Jesus Christ that we can see all the way through the rest of the Bible and it, some say that Jesus they put four different colored robes on him when they were taking him out before they crucified him you know they put a red one a purple one for the king see purple pictures that he's the royalty blue that he came from heaven red that his blood would be shed white his purity his absolute perfection and that he had all these colors on him so it's very interesting to see that these colors are brought into the tabernacle so bring all these things and then oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and the sweet incense onyx stones stone to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you now this is the verse I want you to underline I'm showing you a pattern so when I make a dress I have a pattern that somebody's made a pattern from something else so according to the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings the heavenly tabernacle it's a pattern of God's throne in heaven so the pattern of all its furnishings just so you shall make it and he starts with the ark which is in here the most important part is the ark which represented the throne of God and it moves out but if you were going to worship you come from this door in we call this the whosoever gate that anybody uh, the gate was always freely open but it had those it was white linen it had the colors the same color the red the blood the white for purity the blue that he came from heaven and uh, that the savior would come from heaven and royalty he's he's the king of kings and lord of lords all of this they would come through and they would bring their offering of a lamb or a ram or a goat if they were poor a pigeon uh, they, they have different offerings they're all mentioned in the first chapter of Leviticus the priest would be standing here and the animal was not willing so they had to tie the animal now Jesus was a willing sacrifice 
he willingly offered himself. These animals didn't like that, but they had to, without the shedding of blood is no forgiveness of sin. And so they would take their animal and sacrifice it there the, and put their hand on the head of it. Some of them, times the priest would do it, sometimes they would have to kill the animal themselves. Might have been a pet animal. And we know that Jesus was God's pet lamb. It just shows you a little bit about what it cost God for Jesus to be our substitute for our sins. So wonderful. Only God could have thought of this way of salvation. But after the sacrifice was made, then this was a place of cleansing. And that pictures the Bible. And so the sacrifice for us has been made, but now we have this Bible. It's the Word of God is our cleansing agent. When we read it, it shows us, like in a mirror, we see ourselves just as sinners. Then we go to the Bible and it tells us if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus said when he was washing the disciples' feet, now you are clean. You only need to wash your feet. See, so you're clean once for all. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, you're clean. He counts you as sinless. God sees you. He sees us already in heaven. Isn't that wonderful to think of? But we aren't in heaven yet, and so we are going to sin daily and, and by omission or commission. So our feet get dirty. That's what the washing of the feet is, is cleansing from sin. So we confess it, we get right with him again, but we're clean every whit because of Jesus' blood. Every believer in Jesus is called clean. An unclean person is someone that doesn't believe in Jesus, and they won't get into heaven. And so that the animal the sacrifices, there were clean animals and unclean. The clean pictured the believer, the unclean the unbeliever. They weren't to sacrifice or eat anything unclean. And that's what the donkey was unclean. And in Leviticus 11, it tells you exactly, um, the clean animals had to have a double sign. They had to have cloven hoof and chew the cud. And do you see the picture there? The way we go, the way we walk and what we say and then when the priests were dedicated, they had to put blood of the sacrifice on the tip of their right thumb, on the tip of their right toe, and their ear. So what you hear is important. Don't listen to evil things. And uh, your thumb, what you do with your hands, and your feet, where you go. We're to all this, that when they dedicated the priests, they did this with them so that they would be dedicated to the Lord. Their ears, what they spoke, or the way they walked, and they didn't live by it either. Many of the priests, Nadab and Abihu didn't, and neither did Eliezer. What was the name of the priests, the, the sons of, of Eli that, that he killed because they were drunk and doing these sacrifices while they were drunk. See, they were flouting God's word. So. It's a serious thing that we read in the 10th chapter of Hebrews to believe in the Lord. He who willingly goes ahead and does what he wants to is, is under God's judgment, really, right here. Even though you're a believer, you'll be caught to heaven. But uh, you might go early, you know, the sin unto death. But so in this area, we see then in Exodus 28 is where we stop. But I thought that we'd start just a little bit and I wanted to read you what I 
read in this one commentary by Thomas Kelly. Many of the writers, he must have been a Plymouth Brethren also, but he has many books that are wonderful. This, he said, no temple made with hands, his place of service is, in heaven itself he serves, a heavenly priesthood his, that's Jesus. In him the shadows of the law are all fulfilled and now withdrawn. See, the problem was that this law, it lasted until Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, which when the church started. See, Jesus came and he fulfilled every little bit of the law. But then now the church has started. Now, what are these new Christians going to do? That's what I thought we would look and just see the effects of the law on the early days of the church. Look at Acts chapter 2. You can mark all these places down, but I just thought that we would go through some of these things today to see what they went through. And still today, some people are meeting on Friday night, Christians, putting themselves back under the law of Moses. Uh, they're called Messianic Jews, Messianic Fellowship. Well, they love the law, evidently. Well, just try to keep some of them. <laughs> just try to see uh, you go through the law. It's very tough. And so on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come in Acts, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And this is in the Arish tense, once for all. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So the minute that you get saved, the minute you believe in Jesus, God places his Holy Spirit within your body. So your body, my body, all of us, we're temples today. There's no temple except us. So where are we taking our temples? How are we treating our temples? How are we feeding our temples? Um, what are we seeing with it to bring into our temples and hearing? So Paul tells us this is a, much of Corinthians. Don't you know you're the temple of God today? But back here, it was the tabernacle, and then Solomon's temple, and then Herod's temple. Everything was under the law. So there was a rushing mighty wind. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Well, why were they all in Jerusalem? It was just packed with people because every godly Jew had to go three times a year to Jerusalem for the spring feast, the summer feast, and the fall feast, those three times. We read that in the Law of Moses. And so that's what Paul is starting churches later on, and he said, I must needs be back in Jerusalem for the feast because it was coming up. So he still, even though he was started in the church, he still it was ingrained in him to be back there for the Feast of Pentecost. So anyway, when they heard this sound, the multitude came together because they were there from Parthia, from Media, the Elamites, verse 9, and those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, and they all heard this sound because everybody heard the disciples speak in their own language. And it's, it's like when Billy Graham would have a conference in Europe, they had some way so that Everybody that was there, no matter if it was Romania or Spain, they all immediately translated it into their own language. So I don't know how God did it. He could do it 
faster and better. But they all understood what they were saying, even though they they were Jews that had been scattered, maybe by the Assyrians, maybe by the Babylonians all over the world. But wherever they were, they came back to Jerusalem. Some only spoke Chinese. They'd been scattered clear into the Far East. But ever they heard this sound, they heard them speak in their own language. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, aren't these all who speak Galileans? Dumbbells, in other words. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamianites, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, all of Africa, and Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Italian, um, both Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they're full of new wine, they're drunk. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and to all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these aren't drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days. So the last days began really with the coming of the day of Pentecost. And there are many days that yet to come, but we're in the last of the last days, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men. Now this is going to be not right now, but it, the same works of the Holy Spirit that happened on the day of Pentecost, when we are caught away, they'll start to happen again. And your old men dream dreams, and on my men servants and maid servants, I will pour out my spirit. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blaze, quoting from Joel. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So it says here that men of Israel hear these words. They all heard in their own language. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Him being delivered by determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. You couldn't have taken him unless God had planned it in eternity past. You have taken by lawless hands what bravery when Peter was the one who denied him when he was at the judgment seat of the Roman rulers. You've crucified and taken by lawless hands and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Then he quotes from David, what David says in Psalm 16, that David said, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced. What did they know in the Old Testament? What did King David know? He knew this. He said, my flesh will rest in hope. He believed in a resurrection because you will not leave my soul in Hades. He won't leave David in hell, nor will you allow your holy one, which wasn't David. He knew he wasn't holy, but Jesus. You won't let your Holy One, by inspiration, David wrote this in Psalm 16, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet, 
David was the prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to David that from his family, from the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, that God would raise up the Messiah, the Christ, to sit on the throne. See, he was promised that before. Now, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, and his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He was risen from the dead, but he went three days and three nights to hell. That Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord says to my Lord, and in the Hebrews, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Lord, said to my Lord, a different Hebrew word, Adonai. So God the Father said to God the Son, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110. Write that in your margin if you don't have it in your notes. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made both this Jesus, whom you crucified. That took a lot of bravery, didn't it? And Paul is going to have the same kind of bravery later on before Pilate and before Caesar. Bravery. To stand firm, even though it meant death. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that this Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord, he's God, and the Messiah. He's the sent one. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, said to Peter and the rest of the men and brethren, what shall we do? And he said, repent, change your mind, and be baptized. And then he said, and the gift of the Holy Spirit will come to you. And verse 41, that day, 3,000 souls... So the church started out with 3,000 Jewish believers, but they still had the baggage of the Old Testament law, didn't they? They'd been raised under it. It's like the rich young ruler said, all these things have I kept from my youth up. Well, he hadn't, but see, he was claiming that he had. But so that's what they lived by and how they were atoned for, their sins were then began the healing and all. So then in Acts 15, things go on a little bit, and Stephen was stoned because of his witness, that wonderful, wonderful witness of Stephen, and Paul was left for dead and stoned. And so then the 15th chapter is, is kind of a pivotal chapter in Acts where certain men came down from Judea. These were believers in the early days of the church. They said, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. See, they're trying to change the gospel, that you, you have to keep the law plus believe in Jesus. You have to be circumcised and keep the law and believe in Jesus. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, so these are brethren disputing, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. See, the church first started in Antioch with Paul when he was up there. So they're having to come south to Jerusalem from Syria. And when they'd come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, now see, these are Pharisaical believers in Jesus, 
It's Paul said, I was a strict Pharisee, trained in the law, taught by Gamaliel. But now, he said, things have to be different. The Lord taught him hard lessons. So, so some of the sects of the Pharisees who believed, see the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees were the fundamentalists. They believed the Bible. They believed in resurrection. The Sadducees were the liberals. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. But this was a, the sect of the Pharisees, and so they were the conservatives. And they rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Well, nobody's kept it. Then Peter arose after much dispute. He said to the men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. See, Peter was sent to Cornelius, the Gentile centurion. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. See, the Jews just thought it's only for us. They didn't let any Gentile come near here. No Gentile could come into the temple. In the outer court they could be. And now it's amazing the Muslims have control and they won't let the Jews up in their place. But anyway, God has made no distinction, verse 9, between us and them, purifying their hearts, not by keeping the law or by circumcised, by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God? Underline this verse by putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as the Gentiles. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James said, Men and brethren, now James was Jesus' brother and very Jewish, uh, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, or Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as is it written in verse 16. This is from Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, will set it up, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles, so back in their own prophets, Amos said, God really wants everybody in heaven. He wants not only Jews, but Gentiles too. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those who among the Gentiles, from among the Gentiles like Cornelius, who are turning to God but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the letters. And they wrote this letter and sent it with them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some went out from us 
have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these things necessary, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they'd read it, they rejoiced over and were encouraged. Now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted the brethren with many words and strengthened them. So Paul and Barnabas, verse 35, remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, as with many others also. Then they start on their second missionary journey. Now next, I want us to go to Paul's letter to the Romans, because this problem of keeping the law just did not go away. But in all these letters, we were going to see, uh, Paul starts off with Romans in chapter 2 even. You think that you're so great by keeping the law. There's no partiality with God. He said, verse 17 of chapter 2, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest. You're counting on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, See, the law instructs, it's our schoolmaster, but see, like that poem I read, it was to bring us to Christ, and we're going to see that in Galatians. And know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident, you Jews, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Therefore, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples or traffic in selling idols? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable, if you keep the law. If you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised person or a Gentile keeps the righteous requirements of the law, doesn't murder, doesn't kill, doesn't commit adultery, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, outward things like circumcision, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What advantage has the Jew, or what profit circumcision? Much in every way, he says, because to them were committed the oracles of God. See, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, those are the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, 
but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. This is false reasoning. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? See, they were saying Paul did this. And why not say, let's do evil, that good may come, as we we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that Paul said, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have previously charged both Jews and Gentiles. They're all under sin. And so this is a picture from Psalm, for all the different Psalms about sinners. They don't seek God. They don't, that's, you're just a sinner. Man in Adam is a sinner. So verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, see, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Can you imagine these Judaizers who were teaching that you had to keep the law? They followed Paul wherever he went. Wherever he started a church, they went in and tried to corrupt the truth of this, to put people back under the yoke of the bondage of the law that they couldn't keep. By the law is the knowledge of sin. By the deeds of the law, you can't be justified in God's sight or declared righteous. All the law can do is show you what sin is. You know what sin is by the law of Moses. We aren't under the law of Moses, but we're under the law of Christ. And at the end of Romans, they, all these things, you shall not murder, you shall not, they're all brought in for us today, which we've always known you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't kill. Even Cain knew he shouldn't have killed his brother. He went running away. Then he said, by the law is the knowledge of sin. But then he says, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, forget the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. See, Amos wrote about it, Moses wrote about it, David wrote about it. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, you you can be bought back to God by Jesus, and that's the only way. Whom God set forth to be a mercy seat. That's the same word as the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies, a propitiation, a covering by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. So when you believed in Jesus, God covered you with the blood of Jesus so that you're propitiated. It's a big word, but it means you're covered, your sins are covered over by the blood of Jesus. God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier. See, God is just, but he's also one who could make other people just of the one who believes in Jesus, who has faith in Jesus. Wherefore, is boasting, you can't boast. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to keep the law of Moses. It came to a screeching halt. It was finished at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and the church began. 
by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And then he goes on to talk about Abraham. When was Abraham justified? Well, he was certainly justified before he was circumcised. He obeyed God. Uh, so he says, now to him who worked, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, the person's faith is counted for righteousness. So David said also, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. See, but in the Old Testament, that happened when you brought the lamb and the animal sacrifice and shed its blood in your place. But now, the precious Lamb of God did the same thing once for all. He said, does this blessedness, is this promise of salvation only for the Jew or the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign See, circumcision was just a sign, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. So in his flesh, God put a sign and a seal that someday from Abraham's family would come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So that was a sign and a seal coming many years after he was saved. So we need to follow in the steps of the faith, verse 12, of our father Abraham while he was still uncircumcised. Now see, this argument is just irrefutable to all these Jews, as Paul was teaching this at every place he went. But they hated it, uh, especially Satan hated it. And he, he uses men to try to thwart everything that God wants to do. He said, if those who are of the law are heirs, verse 14, faith is made void. It's, not, it's useless. Why bother with faith in Jesus if you can keep the law? But nobody kept the law. The promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there's no violation of it either. Therefore, it's of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as is written to Abraham back in Genesis, before he was circumcised. I've made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. In other words, Abraham was a hundred when he finally had the promised child. See, God can do miracles who contrary to hope, Abraham, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, Abraham did, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And being not weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's room, who was ninety, he didn't waver at the promise of God through unbelief. I'm not doubting you, Lord, at a hundred and ninety, she's ninety, we can still have a child. He didn't waver, he believed. A hundred years old, he giving glory to God, he believed, being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. You know, that's a wonderful thing, what God promises us things. You know, sometimes we might have doubts, well, what about heaven, is this true? Now, see, we believe it. By faith we believe it, being fully convinced that what God has promised, all these things in this book, he's able to perform. 
and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was reckoned to his account or imputed to him, but also for us. And that's what the whole little book of Philemon is about. Put that to my account. If I owe you anything from this slave that's being returned, put that to my account. I'll pay for it. That's what Jesus said. Her sin, her sin, his sin. Put that to my account. I paid for it at the cross. Isn't that wonderful to think of? Only Christianity offers this. This is a gospel of love and caring. But also for us it shall be imputed who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because we were justified. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How do you have peace with God? Through faith in Jesus Christ. When somebody says, have you made your peace with God? Well, yes, when I believed in Jesus. That don't, you know, that's not something that the priest does right before you die in the hospital. No, just tell him, I've already made peace with God through Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, Paul says, but we glory in troubles, tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, character hope. And hope doesn't disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Uh, all of this is so wonderful. The 14th verse says this, uh, the 12th verse, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, what was his name? Adam. Well, Eve, I thought, did it. But you see, man is the federal head of the human race. So God said, it's your fault, Adam. As sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there's no law. It isn't charged with it. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who hadn't sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is the type of him who was to come. So when they teach in these schools that there's no such thing as Adam, and that's what they taught. Ned tried to teach him that. There were three Christians where he went to school. And so I went, they were in the little children's class. They brought this home to me. I said, well, then if Adam didn't live, Paul is, is a liar in saying that Jesus is the last Adam. So if, if there wasn't a real Adam, there isn't a real Jesus. And they, they believe in a real Jesus, see? So that's a good answer for Episcopalians and others that are liberal and want to do away, uh, make the Old Testament spiritualized. Adam was not a real person. Abraham wasn't a real person. Oh, he wasn't? Well, then you have to throw out the Book of Romans. The, he was a real person. You take the Bible literally, and the more you take it literally, the more it will mean to you, verse by verse, literally. The more I do that, the more God opens up things to me. So nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those who hadn't sinned according to the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. So Adam's a type of Jesus. But the free gift is not like the offense of Adam. For if by the one man's offense, Adam, many died, all the world, much more, much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. 
And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in being declared just before God, just as if I had never sinned. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness who will reign. Now this is important to see. Will reign not in heaven, but in life. That you and I can have victory reign in life. We don't have to say, you know, the devil made me do it. We don't have to because we have the Holy Spirit who's more powerful than the devil any day. And so he's within us and he can give us power to reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. And so how can he reign in, in life through Jesus Christ? Well, just like putting, dedicating our ear and our hand and our feet, our whole body to the Lord for service. And, and in everything we do, not necessarily teach, but where we go, the way we live, people watch us. Don't think they don't see you leaving for church, maybe with the Bible, or just going at a certain time. They're out walking. They see me coming along. I usually stop and make it very obvious <laughs> that I'm introducing the preacher to them. And uh, many of them are Christians. And I understand that there are very few churches where the gospel is very clear and where it's, where it's worth going to. But it's better to be seen someplace than not any place. So anyway, we will reign in life. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came on all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift, salvation, came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, the world was made sinner. So also by one man's obedience, Jesus, the world, all who believe, can be made righteous. That's what this is saying. Moreover, the law entered. So we have the law of Moses coming in again. The moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law. It entered that the offense might abound, be very clear. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then chapter 6 is, is a life-changing chapter. What should we do? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, certainly not. How shall we have died to sin? So God is saying, like when you're baptized and go under the water, God is saying you died with Jesus in figure, in a picture. You go under the water, I died with him. Up out of the water, I'm raised to a new life because he was raised from the dead, to live for him in a new life. So in essence, we died in Christ. And Paul later on in Galatians says, I am crucified with Christ. I died with him. Yet nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of him who loved me and gave himself for me. See, it's a whole different thing than the law of Moses, where I'm going to strive and try and can't do it. But they tried, and some did better than others. It's like trying to swim across the lake. Some good swimmers can go farther, but maybe at Lake Michigan or the ocean, you can't swim all the way. But some can't go very far at all. Then he goes on this whole thing. It's just don't let sin reign over you in chapter 14. All right, now then I want us to turn to another book, which has to do with this. You can't understand the book of Hebrews unless you understand the tabernacle in the wilderness. 
of this law of Moses. And he talks about the high priest, but we're not going to do that one today. We'll go to Hebrews 9. We'll, but the first part talks about the high priest, and we'll talk about him more when we get to that in Exodus. But turn to this ninth chapter. Well, in the eighth chapter, he said, I'm making a new covenant with the house of Israel. And so the old covenant is disregarded. Verse 13 says of chapter 8, a new covenant, he, when he says that, he's made the first, see the word, obsolete. What does your Bible say? Obsolete or done away. Now what is becoming done away and growing old is ready to vanish away. Paul is saying the law is no longer necessary. You have the whole New Testament. You have all of the same, the laws of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you don't need the law of Moses. Then he says in chapter 9, Then indeed, even the first covenant, the law of Moses, and had ordinance of divine, and divine service and the earthly sanctuary. That's a picture of it here, the first one. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand. So this tent, this is the tent part. This is the outer court. But the tent is here. This is the tabernacle. And some of them have flat roofs, but I think Dick Williams had one and Mount has it so that it would have, the water would drain off. The other would be flat and wouldn't drain the water. Not that it rained a lot at Mount Sinai, but probably did some. Anyway, the tabernacle, the first thing, was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. So this is the sanctuary. And nobody could go in except the priests. And nobody could go in here except the high priest, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he had to go in with blood for himself and for the people, and with bells on the bottom of his he was an old man if he died and they'd say that they tied a rope around his ankle so that if he did die back there they didn't want to die they'd pull him out by his ankles because it's a serious thing to stand before a holy god so anyway the regular priest could go in here and behind the second veil that's this veil the part of the tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, the holiest of all, which had the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, and Dr. Unger says that the cherubim really had feet, and that they were standing there with their wings over like this. And they seemed to represent their high order of angelic beings representing God's throne. So they represented, this is a holy place, and God's covering, angels were covering over it. So the cherubim of glory were over it, overshadowing the mercy seat. The ark had a lid called the mercy seat. Uh, the ark it was just an empty box, but they were to make a, a lid for it called the mercy seat, which is the atonement seat on which the blood was shed. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail, but Moses did, and we read it last week. Now when these things had been prepared, the priests also went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, 
the high priest went alone, once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins, committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic. It was just a symbol for the, that time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect. In, you can't really forgive sins in regard to the conscience. Concerned it was with foods and drinks, outward things, not the heart. With foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation or the time when the church would start and this would be done away. But Christ came as high priest. Now this really makes them furious as Paul would teaching this. He's the high priest, but he's not from the right tribe. See, the high priest had to be from Moses' tribe of Levi, Aaron's tribe. And Jesus, it's evident, came from David's family. So really, like in Zechariah, there is a king priest in Zechariah, put the crown on the high priest. Well, that's what Jesus is. He's a king priest. But Paul goes even further and goes back to Genesis, like the order of Melchizedek, that Abraham gave tithes and offering when he defeated the Mesopotamian king. So we see that all of this is symbolic of that Jesus is like Melchizedek, a king and a priest because he was the king of Salem which later became Jerusalem. So he was a Canaanite king who was a believer in Jesus back then. And he must have been very famous and wonderful because Abraham brought him all these tithes and offerings and he was able to offer communion, not a sacrifice but bread and wine. The same thing we have in communion is what Melchizedek brought. Now, Melchizedek was not Shem. He was not some other thing. Just take the Bible literally. He was a real person named Melchizedek. But these writers will try to say, uh, not Dr. Ryrie, but some of them will try to say he's something else. But anyway, so the Holy Spirit says the way into the holiest of all wasn't yet until Jesus would come, but Christ came as high priest of good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, a tent that is not of this creation, but not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So some way, after Jesus died on the cross, he went up to the Holy of Holies in heaven and presented the blood as the high priest would do. And it was accepted once for all, never again do we have to do any of that. He said, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, and I was reading about the red heifer as sacrifice. They say that they have a red heifer ready to go. And this one commentary said that actually only six red heifers were used all during the Levitical time because they would take the ashes of this red heifer and it had to not have one hair except they'd all had to be red. If it had one brown hair, one black hair, wouldn't do, it had to be all red. And so they were rare, very rare. And so they would make the ashes into a very small thing and they would take just a, the tip of their finger and use that, for, it would cover sin for them 
um, in the book of Numbers, it, you read about that. Numbers 19, 19 is where it talks about it. But not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, Jesus did. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean. See, that's what they did. They would sprinkle the person and they'd be clean when they had just a, just a, just a little bit of a red heifer ashes on them. Sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more it would purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Not the flesh, but the conscience, inward. For this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator, the go-between of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called, the believers, may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where there's a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. If I make a will, it isn't any good now until I die. And not, I hope it'll still be good after I die, although I won't care then. <laughs> Neither will you. <laughs> anyway, but it's no good until after the death of the testator. For where there's a testament, there must of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, Moses took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself, that would be back here, and the people. That would be the law, the, the law of Moses, the book of law. He sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then, likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purged with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies, see, these are copies of the things in the heavens, that they should be purified with these, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these down here that Moses could bring. What was the better sacrifice? For Christ has not entered it. The holy place is made with hands, like this is made with hands. He's entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He would then have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the ages, so evidently, the ages before were the age of innocence and the age of promise, the age of human government, law in the Old Testament. But now in the end of the ages, he appeared to put away sin when Jesus came by the sacrifice of himself. As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to, and to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin our salvation. Now our time is up, but I want you to go home and read this, these sacrifices, which I may read again later, but I want you to see, turn with me just in closing, to see that God isn't through with his tabernacle. 
because in the book of Revelation, the, the revelator, John, he sees things like in Revelation 8, 3. After these trumpet judgments, they were the first series of judgments in the tribulation. It says in verse 3, I'm going to read verse 2. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven, and I saw seven angels, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, see like the high priest had censer that he would bring into the holy place, a golden censer came and stood at the altar. This is in heaven. And he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now this is a heavenly scene. So this is a copy of things in the heavenlies. That's what we see that John saw. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now, so then the next time we see it is in chapter 11, verse 19. This is the last trumpet, when the seventh trumpet sounded. Thus the seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven, verse 50, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones, by God's throne, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you've taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants at the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. So that's where the ark of the covenant is. The original one is in heaven. The ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. So you see, this is a copy of a heavenly thing. Then Revelation 14, verse 18. Now this is these terrible judgments where Babylon has fallen, is fallen. But verse 18 says, and The time has come for you to reap the harvest, for the, the harvest of the earth is ripe. He who sat in the cloud thrust his sickle, verse 16, on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another, so God says he's going to do a quick judgment on this earth. Then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud voice to him who had the sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth, gathered the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 200 miles, four and a half feet high for 200 miles. And then chapter 15, and 14 and 15, then I saw another sign in heaven of the angels having the seven last plagues. And then the verse two, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, they were standing on the sea of glass. 
I've never heard of a sea of glass, but that's what this is, having harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and of the song of the Lamb. And he gives that, after these things, verse 5, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. When you go home, you can read these seven plagues that are coming. It's going to be just so terrible. The whole river Euphrates is going to be dried up, and oh, well, it's going to be an awful time coming, but you and I will miss it. Every believer is going to be caught away. And you know how we know that? Look at the third chapter of Revelation, where it says, and Dr. Oh, President of Dallas, I'm really came here. Walver, thank you, honey. Um, he said in verse 10 of chapter 3, because you've kept my command to persevere, he's talking to the church in Sardis, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Behold fast what you have, that no one will take your crown. So this is a very a good pre-tribulation rapture verse. I will keep you from this hour when this wrath of God is going to be poured out on the earth. So Lord, we thank you for this time together. Bless these things to our hearts and make us thirsty to read more because one part of scripture just meshes in with another part and explains some things in the Old Testament that we, that we wonder about. But next week we'll go back and look in the Old Testament again. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.